I'm Mark Gandy for Sample Bookshelf. Hey, do you remember your first business 101 course back in school? I'm betting one of the very first frameworks you learned was the org chart. More than 25 years later, I've observed consultants filling in org charts as part of their strategic planning exercises, but I've never heard those same consultants mention our topic for this conversation. It's systems thinking. What is it? Does it matter? Are we at risk of not knowing about systems thinking? And if it is important, where do we start the knowledge building process? Well, I've got an idea. Dr. William Donaldson has written the simplest book I've read on systems thinking. The title, It's Simple Complexity. And we are going to discuss this book coming up next. Again, his name is Dr. William Donaldson. He goes by Willie. And if you read part, most, or all of the book, The Fifth Discipline, you learned about systems thinking. Yet, I rarely hear someone or some of the top business influencers and CEO organizations mentioning systems thinking. And that's where I started my chat with Willie and his book, Simple Complexity. I don't remember Vern Harnish ever mentioning systems thinking. Uh, I'm thinking of some Vistage. If I were to do a survey of Vistage chairs, have you talked about systems thinking in your last 12 meetings? I bet it'd be maybe 1% if even that. So, Willie, what's the deal with systems thinking? How come it's not talked about enough? I think it's more, it's one, it's been obscure, um, and the original texts were hard to apply. It was just unapproachable. I love Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, but I don't torture my students with it because it's just too hard, too obtuse to get at. And, and it's w- one of the real problems. But you're, you're hitting on something that's very frustrating to me. I'll give you an example. I just worked with a major financial institution, had 84 of their top um, managers, including the whole C-suite, at a retreat. And they wanted to talk about systems thinking. And I asked them, I said, is your enterprise a system? A hundred percent. All 84 put their hand up and said, yes, it is. Then I said, is your, is this a subsystem of the, of the holding company that is also a system? And they all said, yes. And I said, is your division or department a subsystem of this system? And they all said, yes. And I said, is your team or your project a subset? And they all said, yes. And then I asked them, how many of you have ever studied systems theory, systems science, systems thinking, systems dynamics? Three people, three. And they were like, yeah, I heard of it. And we just don't know it. So it's very obscure. And that's part of my mission. I really want to bring it to life because every time I teach it to executives or my students, they say, wow, why has this stuff been hidden from us? Well, I was just going to say, Peter Senge said it, it is the discipline that integrates the disciplines. And it's just why it's not taught more often and, and embraced more often. But the World Economic Forum has made it one of the top skills we must embrace. I, I will yep. tell you here in mid-Missouri, every farmer, they may not know what systems thinking is, but they know that their farm is a system because they know what's yeah. the law of unintended and, uh, consequences. And that's actually a big problem because they think they know systems, well, but they don't know the dynamics that really drive systems at scale and and how they really work. What is, by the way, you just gave a definition, but what is your favorite definition? If you were in a high school talking to some high school students, what would be your favorite or best definition for those kids? Yeah, I would I would tell them very much what I write in the book is that it is a, a group of elements or a collection of elements that interact in either a purpose or some sort of focused nature or in natural systems, a, a repeatable set of dynamics that you see again and again and again, a characteristic set of, of performances. And, you know, what what that does is cast an unbelievably large net. It says that a team is a system and it says that a, 
a company as a system, a not-for-profit, a hospital, you name it, the economy. Um, and I think that's really important. And it also clarifies it by getting to the point that can you can you really get specific and clarity around those three elements? What is the purpose of bringing these people together? If you don't clarify that, then any number of things can happen. We can talk about equifinality and multifinality in the future. Um, you know, if you don't have the right elements, and if those interactions are stilted or they're not they're not correct. So I think as a CEO or CFO asking those questions hey, does this project have the right elements in place? Do we have the right software, the right tools, the right skill sets? And are they interacting the correct way? Are, are they doing it because they have to or because they want to? Are they doing it because they know what they're doing or are they groping in the dark? And have we clarified the purpose for the that set of elements? I got into my first mastermind group, 2003, 2004, with about six other consultants where I live. And systems thinking came up. And one of the people that was leading our session, we meet every month. He said, get the book, Thinking in Systems. It's the book, the white cover that has, a, 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 I think, a slinky. Slinky, yep. And by, by Meadows. So I get it. And, you know, I, I'm not the smartest kid on the block, <laughs> but I'm not the big dummy either. And, Willie, I struggled with that book. I still think it's probably the best book to go to, to at least get the big picture. But before I compliment you with your book, (laughs) do you recommend the Meadows book for the typical CEO or any other business leader just to get started with this idea of systems thinking? Well, obviously with my, my book was written specifically as applying systems thinking to an enterprise. And that's why I recommend my book because it is more approachable. But for somebody who just wants to think beyond, for instance, or an environmental scientist, I will recommend Meadows book because it does get you into natural systems and some of the other behaviors. You were on my short list of 100 when I started this show over two years ago. We finally just made this this a reality. Your book is so... I can't think of a better word, accessible. And here's what makes this book special. Because you are a, you've been a business owner, you do consulting. So you're approaching this pragmatically. And one of my favorite parts in the book is you've got these sidebars. Uh, in the Kindle version, they're a little bit grayed out, but they're lessons from the field. And I just want to compliment you for putting those in because they make systems thinking real. It's like, oh, I get this. I see where he's coming from. So I love your book. Well, thank you. You're, you're, that's exactly what I, I set out to do when writing it, is I wanted to make it approachable. I wanted people to be able to see themselves in it and say, oh, okay, I get it. The thing that's really interesting is people are generally fairly good systems thinkers because they've had to deal with them all their life. What we haven't given them is a set of lenses and a language to talk about it specifically. So I had senior executives from IBM, GE, you name it, Siemens, come work for me. And they're like, oh, my God, after they took the first class in our corporate university, they're like, wait a minute. Now it all makes sense to me. Now the pieces come together and make sense. I've always known that was going on, but I didn't know what to call it. And I didn't know why it was going on. And so it's just a mystery to me why we don't do more of it. I want to hear your origin story. When when did you start apply, not applying, but when did this when did this heightened sense of awareness occur with systems thinking? Well, it's actually a funny story. My father was an aeronautical engineer and came out of Rensselaer Polytech in during the the Second World War. And he was sent to the National Advisory Council on Aeronautics, which became NASA. And dad was very much a polymath. He, he could sing, he could dance. He was an engineer, he did mathematics. He was a philosopher. Um, and anyway, he read von Burton Lamptey's book a thousand years ago, and he got the, the notion of reacting to the reductionist thinking. And to put a person on the moon, you have to think in systems, right? So I was in, I was, hadn't even gone to high school when my father gave me all the early books on systems thinking, von Burton, Lanphy, Ackoff, Churchman, Checkland, 
Russell Ackoff was a friend of his at the University of Pennsylvania. And I've often joked about whether that was for punishment or enlightenment, but I took it as enlightenment. And I went to high school thinking, sure, everybody's going to think in systems. And boy, was I wrong. I, it just as people thought I was the weirdest person on earth. I was like, wait a minute, what's he talking about? Then I went to engineering school and thought for sure everybody's going to know that they're living in systems. I could only find one or two professors that even had an idea what I was talking about. Then I converted to business and same thing. I thought for sure business people are going to know that they're running a system. I couldn't have been more surprised. And that's when everybody started saying, you should write a book because you just look at this whole thing very differently than everybody else. So I've been doing this a long time and it's just been like a lone person howling in the woods. I've been talking about it and nobody knew what I was talking about. So it's frustrating. Is, is the opposite of systems thinking linear thinking? Yes and no. I mean, some systems are very linear, but the, the biggest one is reductionist. And that's the damnable paradox is complex problems and complex things. You have to break them down and reduce them to their, their component parts. But what we do is we forget that you can't just then put them all back together and understand the parts. You have to understand the whole. That's what I talk about hermeneutics um, is understanding both the parts and the whole because the whole gives context to the parts and then the parts make up the whole and they often behave very differently than they do as discrete elements. And so that's the paradox and that's the importance of both and thinking both the the, the employee and his or her job or role is important, both the system and the parts, both the elements and the purpose and the interaction. You've got to look at it holistically. And I'm going to go ahead and somewhat repeat what you just said. You used the word interaction. I'm a little bit surprised why people would say they don't get systems thinking, uh, business, engineering, the academic world, because if you were to just start out with the concept of interconnectivity, it's like, oh, I get that. So when I think of systems thinking, am I being too overly simplistic when I think of interconnectivity of everything within the system? Is that too overly simplified? No, it, it isn't. But it, that's also why people don't like it, because then they're saying, well, OK, where do I stop? Right. It, this is infinite. It's too hard. I'm just going to push it in the too hard column. But that's exactly where this notion of setting the boundaries and, and Meadows talks about it so importantly that there are no boundaries in, the, in real systems, right? There's not a boundary between accounting and finance and finance and marketing and operations and, and human resources. They don't exist. They are mental, artificial mental model boundaries that we have to draw to understand the system. But we also then have to throw them away and say, that, but they don't really exist. Because if we don't, people will practice bounded rationality. They'll bound that problem and say, okay, I now know how it works. And they're going to optimize that small part of their world rather than seeing the whole. I also wrote down, and I mentioned this term near the very beginning. If I knew nothing about systems thinking, if you just use the words, the law of unintended consequences, I make this decision. Let me think of all the impact that they could have especially in the political spectrum, the healthcare <laughs> yeah. spectrum. But is that a good framework or mental model to have in your hip pocket when we start thinking about systems thinking, the law of unintended Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we talk about, I talk about in the book, emergent properties, right? right? You bring these people together, these elements, and they start interacting, stuff's going to let go. Stuff's going to happen. And that can be either positive or negative. Right. Some of it can be great. New ideas, new ways of envisioning the world or the job or the or the, the context. The other is they'll make it up and do the wrong things with it. We do have a lightning round coming up near the end. But can I throw one more question at you before we get into the book? Absolutely. Because the, the, this you you've seen this a lot and you've worked with these what I call high dopamine high result, goal-centric CEOs. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with them. No. Th those are the ones who keep the economy humming and growing yeah. and expanding. But here's a question I, I just, I was dying to ask you, and I didn't even tell you about this up front. You take that executive 
and I'm talking small business, $100 million and under. Mm-hmm. So you may not have this formalized corporate governance, board of directors. I mean, that CEO, he or she is leading the charge. Let's say they have that one, one big goal. What are the issues that they have to deal with when they have that one big goal, that one big objective? I got Fern Harnish in the back of my mind where you got the big one goal, the big two goals. After reading your book more than once, being exposed to Meadows for nearly 20 years, we have to be careful about the goals we set, right? I don't know if that was a very good question, but goals and systems, sometimes they don't always work very well together. Is that right? Absolutely. That's that's the problem. I write about it in the book, the example yeah. notes from the field where the, the gentleman I was working with said, oh, well, our goal, our, you know, our vision of the company is going to be a $20 million, $100 million company. That's great for him. But how do I, as an employee, connect to that? It doesn't, that does nothing for me. It doesn't inform me at all about what I should be doing in my daily life at work. And we, so setting those goals is problematic. The other is, let's face it, a lot of these high dopamine CEOs, they've got pretty good size egos. Um, That's why they don't want a board of directors or a board of advisors, because they don't want anybody to tell them what they're doing. And a lot of them, I just did a a podcast for Chella Dinkoy, and and I told you, you know, they believe their own press releases. Oh, I'm great. I'm big. I'm bad. And, you know, I I own this market. And no, you got to be a little humble because the system will humble you. And then one last thing. And again, this this is some Vern Harnish, I would say, influence. But the one big key number, the critical number, the great game of business people, the critical number, that you have to be careful of that even in a systems thinking world, right? Yes, absolutely. Because it, you know, the, the numbers are a following effect of all the actions the system takes and the people in the system take. And so is that the right number to think about? So many things add to it. And it's very hard to come up with just one that tells the whole story. If it were linear and if it were predictable, that would be the case, but it's not. Reductionist thinking. I think this is so fundamental. I mean, this is, and you actually mentioned it, but just remind us, what is reductionist thinking? Well, the the best example I can give you is I teach at a business school currently, and you cannot bring in a newbie who's never seen this, or you've done this with a, a brand new entrepreneur and say, okay, just manage the whole thing. You have to then break it down into accounting, finance, marketing, sales, operations, law, and that you have to reduce it to to component parts and elements that they can understand and grasp. The the danger there is that we stop at that and say, okay, so you want me to, to optimize everything in finance or everything in law, no, it has to operate as a system. And, and that's probably the hardest thing for a lot of people to overcome, particularly high dopamine CEOs who've been trained in finance or trained in sales. Everything looks like sales to them. And so they go out, you know, and if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so they don't take into account, they, they can sell their way out of problems or they can finance their way out of problems or they can reduce costs there to get to some preferred result. And you just can't get there that way. You have to think about the system. And often you have to sub-optimize part of the system. In fact, the one that you're managing, which a lot of managers are really uncomfortable with. You described earlier the system is composed of elements, interactions, purpose. I had not seen that description before. I thought, this is excellent. Highlighted it. I've got it written down on an index. I'll never forget that. Why did you include purpose in those three words? Because, again, when you think about bringing together time, people, and money, which are the only things a manager has, if they don't get the purpose right, if you don't clarify that, they'll make it up. If you bring people together, if it's unclear, they're going to make it up to complete the story for themselves. Okay, well, Mark brought us together to do X. Well, is that really clear? So making sure that purpose, the other thing is people connect with purpose. They don't connect with goals. As I say, oh, so Henry wants to make a hundred million dollars so he can buy a new yacht. That doesn't drive me every day, but helping 
um, unwed mothers in an, in an NGO feeding people who have food insecurities or um, delivering fantastic products that save lives, that I can connect with. And so purpose is, you know, I think we're all purposeful people. We connect with purpose. When you meet with the small management team for the first time going through this, how do you, I'm just being nosy. How do you go about starting to teach and explain this where you're, and I'm assuming you probably start not maybe first off, but near the beginning, you're addressing elements, interactions, purpose. And by the way, before you say anything, this is a very visual concept as well. So it, the, the book is going to be very, very helpful because you have a lot of diagrams yeah. uh, to flesh this out. But when you're teaching this to a brand new management team or a leadership team, what's your approach here with these three? Yeah, I, I usually start with the, the questions I just asked. I told you about asking that financial services mm-hmm. firm, where do you guys all think you're in a system, et cetera? And then I ask them, can you just optimize finance or can you just optimize this particular? And they almost universally say, well, no. And then I say, okay, well, then you're dealing in a system. Let's get started. What would be a good definition of a system? And I get them to actually create their own. And they usually get very close to elements interacting with a purpose, time, people and money focused on a task. Right. It's so you sort of, you know, trap them with what they already know is how I do it. The reason I ask, and I don't know why I have them on the top of my mind, I think my favorite nonprofit I've ever worked with, and by the way, nonprofits, you know, there, there's some discussion in the book on, on nonprofits. The Ronald McDonald House is one of the most amazing, remarkable group here in Columbia, Missouri. I've worked with gifted people, very giving people doing some great good with families. That is almost a confusing system because you have one system where you're fulfilling the mission, you know, having families that may need to spend two full months, three months being housed where they can see their kids day in and day out. But then you have another system that, well, we need to raise cash mm-hmm. on, and on and to keep our mission and so that's why I asked you that question, because sometimes you've got more than one system, multiple systems, subsystems, and that's where, to me, it can get a little bit confusing, but it can still be kept simplified. And that's where the system thinking comes in is to say, okay, let's identify those systems that have to interact and, in fact, right. are interacting today and make sure we know what's going on. And that's this notion of in-scoping and out-scoping to, to get a, a full grasp of where I should draw the boundaries for that discussion. So there's a great example. I don't know if you ever heard of a group in San Diego called Father Joe's Villages. Yes. And they're trying to help deal with homelessness. And, and they realize that all of the systems that the homeless have to deal with, there's no way they can navigate them. So they put together a system to help navigate those other systems. It's a great example. Can you delineate between systems and processes. Because some people will say, I've got a system for this. It's like, no, that's really a process. That's a checklist. It's a box and arrow. But yeah. th- there is a difference, right? There is. And so I look at, at processes as some of the elements that go into the system. And, and I make the distinction between systemic and systematic. A process is very systematic. It, it does the same thing again and again, very linear, typically versus systemic, which is looking at the whole and making sure you take into account all of the dynamics. Silo thinking. Silo thinking almost needs to be put aside because of the interconnectivity, right? Well, that's why, as you know, as I cascade that whole on down through my organizations, I did that to bust up silos, to let them know you can't, you cannot operate in that silo Completely. Yes, it has to exist. And that's the paradox, the both end. Yes, you have to operate in that finance silo, but you have to understand you're part of the greater system and vice versa. I think anyone and I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I bet more than 60 percent of our listeners have read the goal a gold rat. In fact, that's Uh probably one of the first business books, probably one of the first five business books I ever read. And 
we learn quickly what a bottleneck is. And we learn a lot about having to suboptimize part of the system if you want to optimize the full system. So hopefully this won't be completely new territory, new information. But can you give one of your favorite examples of having to suboptimize in order to optimize the system? Because again, this comes up in, in the text. Yeah. So I, I give you an example right now. I've got a, a custom builder that's working and she is getting more work than she can possibly do. Um, and she keeps struggling because she, she wants to satisfy homeowners. She wants to do the work, but she wasn't identifying the, the, the um, bottlenecks in her organization. Well, so Yes, you can build the foundation, but if you don't have enough trim carpenters, you can't finish the jobs. And so those are lagging. And so it it took her a while to come to the conclusion of, oh, I can't really do this unless I can optimize all of those and and harmonize all of those inputs. Well, but I don't have enough trim carpenters. Okay, well, then you're going to have to either slow down your growth or go out and subcontract for those skill sets. And that's all predictable and you can use it in your forecasting and see where those you know, challenges are going to come. So let's keep with this example. And I gave you the page ahead of time so you wouldn't be hitting this cold. Page 148. Page 148. Mm-hmm. What would be, in her case, her level, her levers for change or control? Well, I think... Uh, again, I, the ones I cite are, the, you know, the quality of your plan. So I worked with her as a good example is, okay, so you want to grow. That's terrific. You've got a good plan. You're, you're targeting the right zip codes, et cetera. That was fine. Then the quality of her, you know, enterprise management system was terrific. Um, but I said, you're not looking at it systemically. You're looking at it as these individual silos and you're assuming that they're all going to come along together. No, you've got to break it down and and get more granular in your approach to see where those bottlenecks are going to come. And then looking at the, the, the commitment of her people. And oh, by the way, the extension of those has to be out to those subcontractors. They've got to be committed to you as well. Um, that's where a lot of, of companies fail. They go out and they want to get somebody to help them, but they don't, it's not a give and take. They don't, what are you giving me in return? Are you making me a part of your system or not? I appreciated that you brought up John Boyd in the, in the book and in his famous mental model, by the way, his mental model came out of thermodynamics. And back to my father who, who introduced me to him because he knew John through his work with the President's Air Quality Board and some of his work in the aerospace community. Uh, explain your reasoning for mentioning Boyd in the book. Yes. So the the holon that I use, the Mobius strip, this knowledge yes. of this complex, always changing item, you cannot take it linearly. You cannot think you've ever conquered it. And Boyd's OODA loop, which is observe to get yourself oriented. You have to do that with the system. You have to get yourself oriented to the system properly, because as Boyd himself pointed out, if you don't observe well and if you are disoriented, that's not a, a point of time where you want to be making decisions, <laughs> right? So that's what, you know, if you've got this complex, ever-changing Mobius strip, you've got to look at it. And that's why I use the Mobius strip as the example. Um, and the, the whole on is a stylized Mobius strip called a Penrose triangle, as you know, and that's to force my managers and anybody I work with to stop and say, let me get myself oriented to the system before I start tinkering and making decisions. And back to the, the high dopamine CEOs, they just don't do that well. <laughs> right? I'll, I'll give you a great example. One of my very, very big clients, I went out and I was explaining strategic planning. A board member asked me to get involved with them with strategic planning. And I shared with them Boyd's OODA loop and I showed them where and he said, yep, and the CEO admitted, he said, we jump in right at decide and act. He said, we never do any of this orienting stuff. Can we hit a lightning round? And it's going to be, sure. hopefully we got plenty of time because I have, my list is somewhat long. It's not overly long, but I'm going to throw some terms at you. So word number one, and it can be a quick answer if you need to, if you want to expand that, that's fine. But let's right. start out with EMS, enterprise 
management system? Yeah. So again, I wanted people to understand you're running an enterprise. You have to have a management system. And the elements that I write about in there are the archetypal elements that, that emerge again and again. You are going to have leadership in the system, whether it's good or bad, whether it's planned or not. Right? You're going to have a governance. That may just be the high dopamine CEO deciding everything he needs to do without any control. You're going to have a culture in that. You're going to have a planning practice. That may mean I don't do any planning. Okay, well, then that's not a good planning process, but you're going to have it. And so the enterprise management system is causing a CEO or, or the managed team to stop and say, yes, I need to attend to these because they're going to be there either by design or by default. And you do not want them by default. I love this next word, simplexity. Simplexity. <laughs> I love that word. Yeah. So uh, if you look at the title, and I don't know if you remember in the book, it, it sort of gets obscured, but simple underline complexity. And a lot of people miss the underline. It's tied together. And I that's just to, to point out that you can't be simple. You can't be complex. You can't be simplex. It's it's a continuum and they crash together, but you can't deal with all the complexity. So we come up with simple mental models to do it. Elements interacting with the purpose as a whole on. But then you got to go back. And, and, and what I wanted my managers to do is stop and say, oh, yeah, that reminds me that it's a system and I'm in a system and I better get oriented. How about You've already mentioned this, but let's flesh it out a little bit more. Both and thinking. Yeah. So again, so many of us stop and and we we come up with our thing. Well, oh, I've seen this problem before, or yeah, this is a finance problem, and I'm just going to solve it. No, the the finance part is important, but what is what's the and? Is there something else I need to think about? And and it's just. Um, you know, the, the parts it really important and the whole is important. And just to get people to stop, we tend to be very reductionist and we tend to, to catch things as, as either or. And very often in complex systems, they're both. The next one is now this may seem it's completely out of context, but I'm going to guess that you have a heart and a passion for family businesses and the sustainability of that mm-hmm. family business to the next generation, the next, that's my opinion without yep. even knowing you. So there's a, a, a section on the family constitution. And did you know, after rereading this, I've been sharing this snippets and encouraging people of family owned businesses. Cause I do work a lot of them. Mm-hmm. This is excellent, Willie. <laughs> but so that's this is part of the lightning round. Talk about anything you want with respect to the family constitution and also how it relates to systems thinking. Well, yeah, and and that's what I I do have a soft spot in my heart for it because I took over my father's two businesses. He got very sick. I was 26 years old. He was a classic end-stage entrepreneur, hadn't thought about what to do afterwards, didn't have anybody smarter than he was, you know, and and so I he called and, and asked for my help and I quit my job and went to run them. Um and and I just saw the dynamics and I lived the dynamics of the challenges in, in intergenerational systems and then working for the American Management Association as one of their consultants. I got involved with a lot of family businesses. And, you know, I've run a publicly traded company. I ran a big international joint venture for a publicly traded company. And that's all really sporting and it's great. But I just feel you're much closer to the quick. You're much closer to reality. And I would point out, you know, the World Economic Forum has identified that 90 percent of all the businesses in the world are small or family held businesses. Right. 70 percent of all employment, 90 percent of all GDP and yet we tend to exclude them. We think about Alibaba and Apple and Google and Meta, and they're great companies, but the vast majority of the world goes to work in a small and family business. And they are, in fact, a, a an enterprise. And the problem is that a lot of families conflate the enterprise management system with the family system, and that leads to all kinds of problems. And I've, you've seen it. I could tell horror stories to your audience about yes. how... In, in running the business, they've ruined the family or vice versa. 
And that's just not, it breaks my heart to see that. Uh, Hopefully we can do a few more of these. Did I say this correctly? Brownian motion. Yeah, again, a term that that I learned from my dad. And that's just this notion that if in in physics and and free space, thermodynamics, the the molecules are always just moving around and they're going wherever they want to go. And that's the sort of the example of that's what people are going to do using the hermeneutic cycle. They're going to make up the purpose. They're going to make up the stories. Uh, and they're just going to start randomly optimizing and doing things that they would want to do if you don't control them. And I don't want to use that term pejoratively, but if you don't give them a direction and a purpose, they're going to wander around in Brownian motion. And and so your enterprise management system is an attempt to try to really capture that energy and steer it in the right direction. And, and the example that I use in the book and I use again and again if you look at the Gallup poll results, where upwards of 80% of the employees say they're disengaged or actively disengaged at work, they don't know what success is. They don't know how to connect to the purpose. They're not being asked for their opinions. And yet managers want to blame them for that problem. I think it's a it's a leadership problem. Another concept you bring up, you bring up this grief cycle. How does it relate to systems thinking? Yeah, the, the, one of the problems is the systems get locked down and people make them try to make them. It's one of the paradoxes I talk about. They try to make them predictable and repeatable and profitable, et cetera. And all that's great, but everything is changing. People are aging in the company. Technology is getting old. The outside world is changing. Your customer base is changing. So change has to be an inevitable, you know, universal concept. And you have to get comfortable with that. But a lot of people don't do that. And then that just makes that those cycles of change and grief much greater when you really tear the, the you know, the scab off and, and, and expose them to the real world. Two more. And yeah. this next to last one, I love it. If you were doing a seminar, I know you're going to bring this up. If you had 50 minutes to do a seminar with a big group of CEOs, I guarantee you this is going to come up as is, should be diagnosis. This is brilliant. You know, you, you want to look at the organization and say, here's where it is today. And that's what a lot of the tools that I've given in my book, try to, to map these things out and create a mental model. But the question is, is that the right system as it should be for the market at this particular time? It goes back to Boyd's OODA loop. Have you observed that the the context that the system is operating in and have you set up a system that works in that context well or do you is there something you need to do to to get it to that point that should be state is important by the way am i right if you had 50 minutes would this be included in the discussion absolutely okay absolutely i saved not the best for last it's one of my favorites for last one of my favorite people I don't know if he knows this, but he is a great writer. His name is Ron Baker, and he's been on the show uh, three times. He's written some great books on value billing and numerous other topics. If, If I could write the check that he would ask me to write, I would say, Ron, you do a better job at interviewing Willie than me. The reason I'm bringing up his name is he's the one who turned me on to a guy named Matthew May. Matthew May has now written at least three books. He has a new one out on lean thinking. Uh, one of his books, maybe his first, is called An Elegant Solution. And I learned in this book that he was the first person to create what's called the Toyota University. And I guess there was some pushback at first because Toyota, their way of teaching others is on the plant floor in real time, not in a classroom setting. Well, I guess something worked because Matthew did that for a number of years. So here's the last item, the lightning round. I'm a big fan because of that book. And I now have this heightened sense of awareness of the concept of the corporate university. So you've got the mic. Yeah. So um, if you think about it, um, so many um, there is learning going on. Peter Sange wrote about the fact that if you want to build a learning organization, You have to you have to be intentional about that. And people are always learning. So the question is, are they learning and growing and developing in the right ways and learning the right things? And it, it's one of the stumbling blocks. People have, oh, Willie, you know, I, I can't set up a corporate university. I don't have 10 million dollars to build buildings. And no, 
it's just a place to go to learn. So we did them just in our break room. You know, we set aside the third Thursday of a month and go in the break room. We had a reading um, lending library and we had on our intranet a place where somebody said, hey, I just read this book. Here's the concepts I extracted from it. The, the point is being intentional about learning, whether it's a formal university or not, that doesn't matter. But people are, are always learning. And I think it's one of the problems with Sengi's book is when it came out, you know, it was all the rage, everybody read. But I think every CEO gave it to their, their director of HR, their VP of HR and say, go build me a learning organization. They didn't realize that you've got to change the whole structure. I am a big fan. And thank you for that example, because since I work with smaller organizations, they're going to ask the same, well, how do I do that? Do I need to hire people? And, and so that is a perfect, uh, perfect example of how to pull something off. I would even say start with a learning audit and just ask everyone in the organization, what would you like to learn to help you do your right. job better? And, yep. and, then, and then why? And then also how can we put this into practice almost immediately? And that yeah, I, I can't tell you how many people, you know, will answer yes to the question, are people your most important asset? And then I ask them, I say, prove it to me, show me where, and they don't have any training rooms. They don't have any tracking of people's knowledge. They don't, they, they don't have a lending library. And I say, well, I don't see any evidence that you value them. What did I not bring up that I should have, sir? <laughs> ah, great question. Um, well, I think the, the role of governance would be a good one for a lot of your clients that, you know, having somebody, you know, you've, you've run a small business, you've worked with them. It's a lonely place. And if you're the pr division president, it's really hard to go to corporate and say, you know, I don't know how to think about this problem. So getting that governance function in place to help you and, and having a place that you can go and, and test ideas and theories or just, you know, have somebody put it on you and say, hey, stop whining about it. That's just the way it is. So I think governance is a, is a missing piece. And when I talk about the archetypes, uh, of, of most of the other, you know, elements were there, but people embedded governance in leadership or they embedded it somewhere else. And I bring it full force to say you have to think about it because it's always going to be there. You always report to somebody. We tend, when, when people ask about your favorite books, I tend to think the books I read early in my career, because I remember those. Uh, there's a book called CEO, the making of a $400 million company by Sandra Kurtzig. Sandra mentioned a concept and I read this back. Oh, one Oh two thereabouts. And she brought up a concept, a board of advisors. So, mm -hmm. so I just want as a pragmatic follow-up to me, there's formal governance and informal and I think where she began to grow was really with that informal governance by having those, because she had, she had people uh, like from uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, Bill Hewlett was part of her, one of her, wouldn't that be great to have? Yep. And and they would yep. meet informally at a restaurant and she just pepper them in with questions. Yep. So I was just going to say, even if you don't have that formalized board of directors or formalized corporate governance, the informal is so powerful. And I know we In fact, it can, it, go ahead. It can be better because if you don't have the fiduciary responsibility of a formal board of directors, you can be open in your discussions, et cetera. So many boards get stilted because the venture capitalist or the private equity you know, has to have this role or they've got a big ego versus, as you say, just sitting down. Now, the one thing I would say is even if you have an informal board of advisors, make it a formal reporting process because the discipline as a CEO to have to go and, and tell somebody about your strategy and defend it, that's a really important, you know, milestone. Well, I ask everybody before we wrap up about their favorite books. I know you're a reader and I, I it sounds like you were reading when you were in uh, high school, these very heavy, lofty uh, books. But I want to know what some of your favorite books are and then also what you've been reading lately. Uh, well, I'll start with reading lately. I just finished, um, and I don't know how you pronounce his last name, Peter. It's either Zihan or Zihan, um, and it's The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And I don't know if you've seen or heard about it. He's a geopolitical strategist, and it's at, at turns brilliant and terrifying what he sees in the world. And, and so that, because I'm a, I'm a 
strategist. I'm a futurist. I, you know, I want to know what's going on. And and he talks about very, very big systems, geopolitical systems and, and what's sort of um, changing there. Um, and then another one that that I just finished, which is extraordinary in, in kind of provocative, and that is Michel Serre. And I don't know if you know Michel Serre, but he's a French philosopher, teaches at, at Stanford, and he wrote a just a short little treatise called Thumbelina. And he also talks about um, Tom Thumb, and he's talking about millennials, you know, always on their phones. And his whole premise is just we keep saying, oh, they're they're disengaged or they're not. He said they're just different. They're, they've been we've raised them through the system to be completely different people, and we we need to start addressing how they learn and how they connect and think about it differently. So those, both of those are very provocative. And and I try to I try to do that. My wife is always after me because she's just and my girls as well. They're just like, Dad, you read the most boring stuff, and they're reading, you know fluff and what I call mind candy. And, and I just, I can't, I can't do it. I, I can't shut this thing off. Do, do you have, do you have a list of favorites from the past? Yeah. Well, a couple that, and I noticed that uh, I think one of your followers and, and you may have had him on your podcast, um, Ed Hess up at UVA is a friend of mine. And, I'm a and, huge you know, fan. Can I just enter in my opinion, Absolutely. in my humble opinion, he wrote the best book ever on growth uh, yep. And it and it, to me, it's from a small company background. But I'm sorry, he is outstanding. And uh, he he said, "Mark, I'd love to be on your show, but we're going to talk about hyper learning instead of smart growth." I thought, okay, <laughs> we'll bring him back and and have him speak about smart growth. But it's a it's a delight. Uh, and you know, and there's so many. You can see my yes my thing in the fence. Um, you know, El, you know, Ella Hugh Goldratt, of course. Um, Built to last, the fifth discipline, you know, again, I like them. Most people don't, and they think I'm sort of, you know, very weird to I don't. recommend them. You remind me a little bit of Clayton Christensen because he spent the first, I would say, up till 40, 42, working in business, running a business. Is that kind of the yeah. path you took as well? Yes, very much. So my first 35 years were um, running, you know, eight businesses as a CEO, another three as a um, CEO from the board of directors as, as interim. Um, and my father got me started. My, my father was the visiting Goddard professor at Princeton for years and would go in as an adjunct and teach. And I went with, you know, my crayons and I'd sit in the back of the room while he's talking about thermodynamics. I had no idea what he's talking about, but I saw that model. And then just, I, I just, realize that teaching and learning with other people, it, you know, you just have to keep sharpening the saw as, as, um, uh, shoot, um, Stephen Covey Stephen says, Covey. You, know, you have to, yeah, you just have to, uh, you know, you just have to keep learning, I think. And, and this notion that you don't, I'll give you another one that I think you should read and somebody you should try to get on your show, Derek Cabrera, if you're familiar with Derek Cabrera. So he wrote a, a great systems thinking and you, you have to look this up. He came up with the best proof of systems ever. And I, it just galls me that I didn't think of it. And I tell him this all the time, but he came up with DSRP as a, as a basically a proof that you're in a system and, and you're going to love this. He's at Cornell and he and his wife, Laura run their system thinking group there. Um, but the D stands for distinctions. And that is if you, if you choose an identity you have to ask yourself the question, is that identity universal? Male, no. White, black, rich, poor, French, Asian. And if that's the case, if you say, no, it's not universal, then I have to say there's another. And you have to say, I've made a distinction here, right? And if you've got an identity and another, well, guess what? You've got parts and holes. You've got a hole and a, and a part. Humans, oh, well, wait a minute. They're not just males. They're also, right? And if that's the case, then you have to say, wait a minute. If I've made a distinction and it's part of, of a greater whole, I have to ask the question, is there a reaction if I take an action? Wow. <laughs> and if that's the case, then you have to acknowledge the P, which is I've got a particular view that gives me a perspective and there are different views of the whole system. And, and so you should, 
you should uh, reach out and, and get to know him. I'm happy to make the introduction. I will, and I'll take you up on it. Thank you yeah. very much. Willie, we could go on. I know you've got work. Uh, I know you got other commitments. Again, this I'm, was this Mark, was a I treat. I would do this for the next 10 hours if I was given, you know, my colleagues here say, are you talking about systems again? You know, but I, I just, I can't stop. It's a good thing you do not live in Columbia, Missouri, uh, in our little college town, because I would be, Hey, let's do coffee. Let, let's talk more about this. I, I'd be, I'd be bothering you all the time. Let, let's let's go get lunch. Let's let's well, talk no, more about this. You wouldn't bother me at all because that's who I am. My daughter caught me. She just got back from a cruise with her fiance, and she said, "Dad, you would have loved it. Every day you get up there, twenty thousand people to talk to." <laughs> so I, I love doing this, and I wish I were out there. And, and we could do this anytime you want, Mark. I'd love to. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. You've made it this far. What if I throw a new term at you? Financials, systems, thinking. I don't know of any company that doesn't set financial goals every year, yet those financial goals might lead to narrow thinking that ignores the bigger whole of the business. So financial systems thinking is instead a holistic approach to problem solving. It's looking at how the entire business works and the ecosystem it lives in, its marketplace. I use the idea of financial systems thinking just to spur you and I on to at least gain an awareness and an acuity of systems thinking. Simple Complexity, the best book I've read that's helped me to understand systems thinking pragmatically. Willie, Dr. William Donaldson, thank you very much. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. (music) 